Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we are continuing through the series Your Kingdom Come through the book of Matthew uh, that we are almost into nine or ten months of and we only have nine or ten years left to process it. And so then we will be halfway done with Matthew. Just kidding. Turn Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount that we are calling Kingdom Living. How do we live in a way that represents the kingdom of God correctly? And last week we were in verses 3 through 6, the beginning. We went through the first four Beatitudes. And the first half of the Beatitudes, those first four, if you will, are, are all about the heart and motives. And we talked about that last week. And I'm, I normally don't encourage people to go back and listen to my messages because it sounds arrogant. But in order for this to really make sense, I, I really want you to go back and kind of see this beautiful picture because these are progressive. As we go through the Beatitudes, it's one building on top of the other. And so these, these first four Beatitudes that we covered last week are really showing the heart. It is really an internal look at the person um, of why we do what we do. And the last half is what is played out when our hearts are in the correct position with God. And so when we uh, focus on those first four, it helps us to understand who we are. And if you remember, uh, we talked about that what it means to be poor in spirit is this humility, understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt. Uh, when he says, bless those who are mourned, that is grieving over our sin to the point where we confess and repent from it. Um, when we talk about the meek, meekness is power under control. It is turning everything who we are and what we have and what God created us to be over to him for his. And that causes us to... Uh, thirst and hunger for righteousness. I always think of the psalm, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And so how do we approach that? When that is our position, when that is our foundation, and at the end of chapter 7 is the conclusion that Jesus leaves on the Sermon of the Mount, is what is your foundation on? So that's why I believe it's really important that you go through and, and are studying this. Also, this is just a tip of the iceberg of what is left for these sayings or for the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, when we have our position in the right place, our heart is positioned correctly before God. And we then can now look at what plays out through the rest of the Beatitudes. So the first four are about our heart motives and the remainder of the Beatitudes are how, when our heart is in the right place, this is then how we live. Um, this is what our foundation, if our foundation is in the right place, this is the action that goes along with it. So let's start Matthew 5. We're going to read 1 through 12. Hopefully you're working on memorizing it. Uh, if you're at our service at any time, we are going to be having memory verse cards for you um, to start to go over it. So Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, We're especially going to be in verses 7 and 8 this evening. Uh, These two Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So those are your two points for this evening. Blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart. And there is so much more to just those two points. But I wanted to kind of give you a heads up on where we're going to be this evening. So point number one is right there, verse seven, blessed are the merciful. So what does merciful mean? And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think this will start to help us to understand exactly what this means. Because we can read it and just be like that Jesus is saying, hey, blessed are the people that are nice. Blessed are the people that are kind. But this word mercy has so much more to it. The definition of merciful is to be concerned about people in their need. Uh, That would be the definition for us. Uh, If we were to look at the definition of God, it would be to be concerned about people in their sin or in their state of being unable to have a relationship with me. So merciful, to be concerned about people in their need. And this is one of the central messages of the entire Bible, both merciful and pure in heart. Uh, Again, we're just going to cover just the tips of the iceberg on these. Uh, This is, uh, we see God's mercy in the creation of everything. We see God's mercy played out in the fall uh, uh, in creation with Adam and Eve. And you go through the entire Bible and it's over and over and over again is God's mercy. And then we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation and it is God's mercy at its fullest point when redeemed sinners get to spend eternity with a king of kings in a perfect kingdom celebrating this God, this merciful God for all eternity. So mercy is such a central theme of the entire Bible. Uh, Mercy is, I've heard people give it, I'm going to give you a couple different definitions to help drive it home, but mercy is compassion in action. If you think about Matthew 9, 38 and 39, a passage we've spent a lot of time on over the course of the summer, uh, we've talked about if you want to see people as Jesus sees people, it is compassion. We can think of compassion as saying, oh man, I feel so bad for that person. I wish there was something I could do. Mercy is compassion with action. It says Jesus saw the crowds and he saw them with compassion. He saw them as, as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then it goes on and this is what he did. He healed every sickness. He restored their their lives. He restored them and he became the perfect shepherd. Not just a shepherd, but he was the good shepherd. Psalm 23 talks about that he saw that we needed a shepherd and so he offered to become our perfect and holy shepherd. Mercy is compassion in action. It's actually doing something. And I want to be very clear as we go through this. Mercy When we demonstrate mercy, we do not earn our salvation. And I want to be so clear, being kind to other people does not earn you salvation. We'll talk about this more at length as we go through some of the passages. But please understand, mercy will never earn you salvation. We demonstrate mercy because we have been shown mercy and experienced salvation through Christ alone. Demonstrating mercy does not earn salvation. You cannot work your way to heaven. 
We are sinful beings with a sinful nature. We can never be good enough to earn salvation apart from what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb. So I want to be very clear with that from the very beginning. You cannot earn salvation. So uh, there's a couple different quotes I want to read to you. The first one has been around for so long that nobody knows who actually started it. And it's showing this difference between mercy and grace because it can be very confusing. They're sometimes used interchangeably, but they really mean two different things. So for us to fully understand mercy, uh, the first thing is uh, grace, this is the quote, grace is God giving us what we do not deserve and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. I'll say that again, grace is God giving us what we do not deserve and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. John MacArthur in one of his books says that mercy deals with the symptoms, grace with the cause. Mercy offers relief from punishment, grace offers pardon for the crime. Mercy eliminates the pain, grace cures the disease. Mercy is shown to us as an old from the 1600s Puritan preacher in England who spent time in prison. He summed it up this way. You experience God's mercy every time you suck in air. In other words, mercy is this huge showing because of sin and sin's destructive force on the earth. All of us experience the effects of sin in some way, whether it's because of a pandemic, whether it's because of war. It's not something that is necessarily single to us, but it's this covering of mercy that even in a world that is ravaged by disease and hunger and war and, and you name it, that we can still experience God's mercy because of every breath we breathe. Going back to creation, Adam and Eve, their punishment should have been death when they sinned, but God showed mercy even in a fallen world. They were still had the ability to have a relationship with God. That is mercy. Grace is so much more uh, singular in its focus. As it says, mercy is, takes care of the symptom. Grace takes care of the disease itself. God's grace is what we can have forgiveness of sin with. So we've seen how God has demonstrated his mercy to us. The question then becomes, how do we demonstrate mercy to others? If Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, how do we show mercy to others? The answer is we show mercy by taking the mercy we have received from God and demonstrating it to others. We cannot forgive sins as Jesus can, but we can do things to help alleviate the pain that sin has caused in the world to demonstrate what living in the kingdom of God is going to be like. We cannot do this apart from Christ. There are so many people throughout history who have demonstrated their sense of mercy, but did not know Christ, meaning it did not come from pure motives and it did not come because they were trying to point people to God. They may have been pointing people to a God, but they were false gods. Apart from salvation, we can never show true mercy in its purest form apart from salvation in Christ. Uh, Paul, who was writing a letter to Titus, a pastor, and explaining to him, here's how you pastor and here's what you do. Uh, he writes this in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and understand so many of Paul's letters contain very similar things to this. This was a central theme that Paul wanted the church to understand so much. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A couple key points from this passage I hope stood out to you. God is rich in mercy. God, who we are told, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that Everything on earth and in heaven is his, but the thing that he's known for being rich in in scripture is mercy. God is rich in mercy. That should drop us to our knees and make us so thankful because without that mercy that he is rich in, we have no chance of ever having a relationship with him. And because of faith in Christ Jesus and what he accomplished, we can now have salvation. But then look at the end. Verse 10, a very overlooked verse in my, in my opinion. After we understand God's mercy and we understand that salvation is by and because of Christ and having faith in him and having forgiveness of sins through him, look what he says in verse 10, for we are God's 
handiwork. Last week we talked about how when we, maybe I think I said it live, I don't think I said it on the recording, but when we understand that we are God's handiwork, we no longer speak negatively about ourselves. When we understand that God doesn't make mistakes in the way that he's created somebody and the experiences that they've gone through are part of his plan, even if it was caused because of our mistakes, whether it was our mistakes or somebody else's sin towards us, it was part of God's plan for his glory. We are God's handiwork. Why? We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God had prepared for us in advance to do. In other words, show God's mercy. We demonstrate God's love to others when we put compassion in action, and we demonstrate mercy. Why? Because we've experienced it. If you know Christ, you've experienced God's riches in mercy. If you know God, you understand that every time you breathe in oxygen, you're experiencing God's mercy. That every breath is a gift from God. How do we live this out? Micah 6.8, he says, He has shown you, O mortal, as if a reminder of who exactly you are. We like to think of ourselves as invincible, especially when we're teenagers, I've realized looking back on life in my early 20s. We like to think of ourselves as invincible and immortal. And Micah, uh, through God, is saying, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? This isn't an option. This is what's required. To act justly, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is a precursor of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, I encourage you to read the entire passage of Micah 6 because it is not pretty. Micah is this prophet in the Old Testament, this minor prophet, is condemning nation after nation after nation. And here he's actually condemning Israel because he's saying, hey, God showed you what he wanted you to do and you're not doing it and that's why your nation is under punishment and will be under punishment. It's this simple. Three things. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So how do we actually, you're like, hey, Rob, that's great. A lot of passages. Fantastic. How do I do it? What do I do? We can show mercy through the physical act of giving. And you're saying, well, what do I give? Money? I'll write a check if that is good enough. It's giving to those who may not know they need it. It's giving to those who don't think they want it. It's living it out even to those who are the opposite of merciful to us. The opposite of merciful is cruel. And being unmerciful is something the Bible condemns and God punishes over and over again. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is listing out the sins of mankind. And when he gets to the end, the last one or the capstone, the finisher of saying all these things can be summarized in this is being unmerciful. So when people are unmerciful and cruel to us, it's still demonstrating God's mercy to them. Why? Because all we ever did was sin against the holiness of God until we came to know him through Jesus Christ. He showed mercy to us, even though we were cruel and unmerciful and flat out sinful against him. Being unmerciful is the ultimate sign that we have rejected God. 
So what do we give to these people? We give compassion. The actual act of giving compassion to them, not just saying, ah, I wish there was something I can do. There's always something you can do. We give our help. We give our time. We give our forgiveness. We give our money. And we give of ourselves in any way that we can. John MacArthur would also write that mercy is also shown in our attitudes. Mercy does not hold a grudge, harbor resentment, capitalize on another's failures or weaknesses, or publicize another's sins. I think you can get rid of about 80% of social media if we take those things out. I think we get rid of about 99% of news if we take those things out. But what about ourselves? What part of ourselves needs to be cut out so that we can demonstrate mercy to others? Again, mercy is also shown in our attitudes. Mercy does not hold a grudge, harbor resentment, capitalize on another's failures or weakness, or publicize another's sins. Also, I want to make sure I'm very clear on this. Mercy can also be confronting somebody else's sin. Mercy is never an excuse to let, let sin go unchecked. Mercy, when we see another believer who's representing the name of Christ in sin, the most merciful thing we can do is help to correct them in a loving way. I can do about 12 messages just on a couple of the things that I've mentioned. I remember hearing people say, Oh, I'm just, you know, telling the truth in love. I'm like, no, you're not. You're dropping a bomb and walking away. That's not love. Love, I love how it's pictured in Galatians 6. It's, uh, we are helping. We come along and we say, hey, I noticed your leg's broken. Put your arm around my shoulders and I'm going to help you get through this together. That's love. That's saying, hey, I've noticed that this is how you're living. And I'm only telling you because I'm willing to walk with you in making sure we correct this. That's how we confront sin. It's done in a loving way because we hope desperately that somebody would do that to us. So we show mercy by confronting somebody else's sin. We talked about this last week, but there is a constant battle between God's vision for his kingdom and the world and how the world thinks. And let me clarify it even more, and I'm sorry if you're not in this country. There's a constant battle between God's vision and the American dream. The world tells us to get more than we can use, and God tells us to give more than we have. This can play out in how we approach mercy. The world tells us to get as much stuff, get as much things, have as many friends, do all of this stuff because you need it, and that's how you make it. Last week I mentioned Ecclesiastes, it is chasing after the wind. Jesus tells us to give more than you ever thought you could. Give more forgiveness than you thought you were capable of doing. Give more money than you think that you actually have. Give more time, give more. This is what is blessed. This is what I'm blessing. This is how you have that happiness that the outside circumstances of the world cannot bother. It's when you focus on me and do what I'm asking. The most merciful thing we can do is have spiritual mercy on people. Show mercy by 
praying for someone. We show mercy by introducing them to Jesus. It's why we have the pi squared cards, is so that we can understand these are five people that I'm going to demonstrate mercy to by praying, by inviting, and by investing time and demonstrating in their lives the mercy of God. Not so that I'm a better friend, but that they can know Jesus. So what is the result? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We've been shown mercy by God. We live it out in our lives. And the end result of us showing mercy that points back to God is that God continues to show us mercy. James 2, 12 through 13, and I'm going to mention this a longer passage at the end. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to talk more about that when we get to our application. We jump now to verse 8. Point number two, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, if you thought there's a lot more to merciful, pure in heart, I don't even know how to describe. Like I could preach for about 12 hours and it wouldn't even be a full intro into this topic. It's another one of these central themes of the Bible. The amount of times that it's repeated, be holy as I am holy. And it's said by a holy God to sinners who have been redeemed by the Savior. So blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart, the pure part means a state of ritual cleanness. The heart is hard to describe. In fact, I was just talking to my son and he was asking spiritual questions. I said, well, when we ask Jesus into our heart and he looked at me and goes, well, how does he get in there? It's like, well, it's um, your four. And so I probably should have found a different way to say this before we started. I said, well, it's a spiritual sense. It's not real. And I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. Having this awesome spiritual conversation with my son. And he says, does he use a drill? It's like, uh, no, not a drill. Like he's not actually going into your heart. It's more of a heart representing. He's like, I think he uses a drill. And so I just realized we're not going to get past the drill thing. And now I've scared my son thinking that Jesus wants to use a drill directly into his chest. So it was a tough conversation. But when I say the heart, whenever you hear the heart mentioned in, in the Bible, the heart in many cultures was believed to be the center of who somebody really was. Uh, it was their thoughts and emotions and knowledge and their will were all referred to or captured in the saying, the heart. Uh, ancients believed that the heart is where our thoughts stemmed from and our emotions and who we are and why we did what we wanted to do. So to summarize both pure and heart, this means to be holy as he is holy, to be as holy as God in our thoughts, actions, knowledge, and in our will. Doesn't seem like a lot, right? We are to be holy as God is holy in our thoughts, our actions, our knowledge, and in our will. So I quit. This is a very tough saying, and I hope that as we walk through this, you'll see how this is possible. Spoiler alert, you can't do it by yourself. The same with mercy, the same with so many of these things that Jesus is calling us to do. You can't do it by yourself. 
I don't know if you remember uh, when we were going through a, a past series, we kept going back to Proverbs 4:23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Hopefully that scares you. <laughs> Hopefully that makes you start to understand why Proverbs, why Solomon Proverbs is telling us to guard our heart for out of it everything flows. Uh, Jesus continually says, even in, later on as we get into Matthew, he says, out of your heart, your mouth speaks, demonstrating what you truly believe in your heart. Jonathan Edwards wrote, a true love of God must begin with delight in his holiness, and not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. Holiness is the essence of who God is. Holiness is a reminder that he is different than us. Without holiness, his love isn't what we think of. His every attribute of God is different than what the world has to offer because of God's holiness and pureness. So when God is calling us to be holy as he is holy, he is calling us to be different than the world around us. And again, it sounds exhausting. We can't do it. And the good news is, you're right. You can't. I can't. But God knows that. And so God gave us the ability to do so. When Jesus talks about the heart, again, go back to the cultural relevancy Jesus was talking about. Because he would later go on to talk to the religious leaders, and we'll see this later on as things start to get heated between Jesus and the religious leaders, and he called them whitewashed tombs, meaning that the outside of this tomb was pretty. They kept it looking nice. They painted it the finest white, and white brings with it the symbolism of pure. But inside it was full of dead, rotting, smelly bones. It was full of decay. This is Jesus when he's telling us to be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's saying, I'm looking on the inside. You can do whatever you want on the outside. And a big portion of the rest of chapter five that we're going to be talking about is him constantly telling people like, yeah, you're doing stuff, but I know your hearts and it's disgusting because you're doing it with false motives. And so Jesus is making a strong point here. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. He wants our hearts. And when he has them, everything else in our life will fall into place. doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect. <laughs> the entire New Testament church history tells us. But it means that we will be able to endure whatever it becomes because our hearts are chasing after God first and foremost. That He is our desire. That, as Jonathan Edwards said, that we must delight in His holiness. We must find our satisfaction in the holiness of God. And that is how we then live it out. So, 
is this easy. No, it is not easy. It is difficult and it is hard. And apart from Jesus, it is absolutely impossible. The writer of the Proverbs in chapter 20, verse 9 says, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. How do we get to that point that we can declare that? We can have purity in heart when we understand that it is possible through what Jesus accomplished. We just read from Ephesians 2, go back to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Again, Ephesians talks so much about God being rich in mercy and that he's lavished on us, that he's given us more and more and more, so much about what God has given to us. And here, because of the, the forgiveness of our sins, our hearts are made pure because of Jesus' blood. Our hearts are pure, righteous to God because of what Jesus has done. And we press on. Another passage we've mentioned is, so how do we, how do, we do this? How do we live so that we are walking with a pure heart or a heart that is chasing after holiness. The first one, walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, we've mentioned this several weeks in a row. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to be continually transforming your heart. Remember what I mean by heart, your thoughts, your actions, your motives, your emotions, your will, all of those things, align them with what the Spirit tells us to do, starting Galatians 5.16 through the rest of the passage. So walk in the Spirit. And number two, how do you do this? Three words. Pray, pray, pray. Okay, it's one word, repeated three times for effect. But I want you to understand how important that this is. Pray, pray, pray. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are told to pray without ceasing. How do you have a pure heart? Pray without ceasing. But in Psalm 51, which we went through last summer, I love how David says this. This is Psalm 51 is written after David is confronted because he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He impregnated her to try to cover it up. He has her husband killed, and he is finally confronted by Nathan the prophet, and he goes into mourning over his sin. And he writes Psalm 51, and it's such a beautiful passage. But verse 10 is what always stands out to me. Because it would be very easy to see David as this sinful person whose writings you should never read. But Psalm 51.10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He calls out to God. Why? Because only God can give a sinner a pure heart. Only God, through his saving work of his son, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross and the empty grave, only through that can we have created in us, a sinful human being, 
a pure heart. And he says, and renew. And that's not a renew one time. That's a renew every day. Uh, We go back to the psalmist saying, your mercies are new every morning. We go back to this, create a steadfast or create a a faithful or a, a steady spirit within me. Why? Because we can't do it ourselves. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, we have it all figured out. I know I don't have it figured out. And even Paul, and I love this passage because we can hold Paul in such a high self-esteem, but Paul was always reminding us that he was human. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He always is reminded of his past, but also his current struggles. And he talks about a thorn in the flesh, which we don't really know if it was something physical or something spiritual. But in Romans 7, we see Paul's heart. And I encourage you to read through um, this passage as you, as you see Paul battling with this sin nature. It's a bit of a tongue twister. So I'll let you the tongue twister part of it where he's saying, I do what I don't want to do, but I constantly am not doing what I want to do. And this is battle. And he goes through this whole passage and he concludes it in verses 21 through 25 when he says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I think we've all been there. How can I be rescued from this? I want to do good. I sincerely love God. I want to do good. How will I ever find rescue? Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The next time you are struggling and battling and can't figure out why you can't go just 10 minutes without sinning, why you can't go two hours without some third of a hateful or lustful thought, Paul went through it too. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's only because of God that we can attempt and live to have purity of heart, to try to live in holiness. Holiness means we are set apart for a special person. It's also the word sanctified, that we are sanctified because of what Jesus did. He has set us apart to live differently than the world around us. So when we live this way, when we live striving after a pure heart, pure motives, pure emotions, pure knowledge, pure will, chasing after God, what is the result? They will see God. Going back to the beginning. When we have mourned over our sin and confessed and repented because of realizing the damaging effects of our sin, and call out to Jesus to make him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, we can begin to understand what it means to be holy, set apart from the world, to be used by God. This causes us to follow him with a sincere heart. Only those whose heart have been made pure by the blood of Jesus and are being transformed daily through the gospel because of the work of the Holy Spirit will see God. But sad news that I wish I didn't feel and I had to tell you. If you rely on being good enough, if your faith is in anything outside of Jesus and what he has done, quite simply, you will not see God or spend eternity in his kingdom.
And I would be remiss if I left that out. There are consequences for not choosing to make him the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. If it's one thing you take away from this message, if you're watching or listening to it, it's this. Turn to Christ. Confess your sins. Turn over your life to him. I understand the struggle of it just seems like too much to do this, but he gives you his helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide you. Please turn over your life to him. So you move into the application part. And as I mentioned in the introduction, the first four Beatitudes deal with the heart and the remaining four are what transpires in our actions when our hearts are in a proper place. But these Beatitudes also go hand in hand as well. If you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, you are humbled because of the mercy shown you and you will not be able to stop demonstrating mercy to others. If you mourn over your sin from recognition of how damaging your sin is, you will be driven to allow the Holy Spirit to continually transform your life into the holiness that can only be found in Jesus and what he accomplished for you and for me. As we mentioned last week, we are using James as the way to apply the Sermon on the Mount. It is believed that uh, James was written as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and how we live it out years later after the church was being established. And James is writing this as the head of the church in Jerusalem and is looked at as one of the main uh, church elders and founders and establisher. And so we say Matthew was the, um, the manual for church planting and discipleship, if you will. Well, James is the commentary on it. It is the study aids in how to fully understand it. So James 2, 12 through 17, we've already read part of this in dealing with mercy. James writes, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds or actions. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. James continues to go on and and make sure you understand deeds do not earn salvation, but salvation through faith in Jesus Christ always results in us doing good deeds. Going back to Ephesians 2, it makes us do, it drives us to do the things that were predestined for us to do to demonstrate that to others. So what does it look like to go about our life showing mercy and listening to the Spirit guide us as He transforms us? Well, what if we started with our spouses? What if we started with our children or our families, extended families? What if it starts with our neighbors and our coworkers? What is the example that we're setting when we're able to show them mercy in our lives? when we don't hold grudges, when we don't bring up the past, when we don't 
blow up what they've done wrong and make sins and mock and slander and we do all of these things that are associated by walking in the flesh. What if we start with those closest to us? And the reason I say that is because it's usually the people closest to us that we have the hardest time demonstrating mercy towards. Because people close to us hurt us. The grocery giveaway, we were talking about this earlier, at the grocery giveaway, it's easy to put groceries in a car of somebody I've never met and may never see again. But how do I demonstrate mercy to my child who won't obey me? How do I show mercy to my neighbor who, I don't, I actually have really good neighbors, so I'm trying to think of an example and can't. But how do I demonstrate mercy to people that I know who hurt me continually? How do I live this out? It's what we're called to do. Again, we've given you the pie squared cards I've already mentioned. Pray, invest, invite. What have you done recently besides pray for that card? Have you had compassion? Have you shown mercy, compassion, and action towards anybody on that list? And secondly, I want to turn to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And again, James is writing, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This passage is a list of things to see how we are doing in living with a pure heart. There are many lists, if you examine through the Bible, we talked about in Galatians 5, and we've seen it where it says if you're living this way, if, if this is what you're feeling, if this is what your emotions are going through, if this is what you're chasing after, this is what you're desiring, guess what? You're living according to the world and its desires, and they pass away. Look at this list. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure or holy. It is clean. Then peace-loving. Next week, we'll talk about blessed are the peacemakers. Considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It goes back to what he said last week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Their harvest is full Pray for the Lord of the harvest. The fields are ripe on the harvest, but the laborers are few. All of these passages flow together to show us what the desire of our heart should be. But also, it is a check for us to do. And how are we doing? Are we living with a pure heart? One of the easiest questions for me to answer is, do I find myself harboring bitterness and envy? Do I find myself hoping that somebody else is hurt or pays for what they've done to me? If so, those are not coming from a pure heart. Are there things in our life that are showing us that we are letting our own selfish ambitions control us? 
Are we chasing after the American dream or are we chasing after God's vision for us? Are we saying, God, show me, created me a clean heart, created me a pure heart, oh God, and help me to live as you want me to live, demonstrating mercy to those around me and everything else that we're going to cover in this passage. I am so glad that you join us. I'm so glad that you watch our messages, whether this is the first one you've ever seen or whether you watch it regularly. But please understand, I want you to so understand how much we want you to know God's word, first and foremost. That we want you to go to God's word. And as we'll see in James as we continue to go, that James says, your word is a mirror reflecting to us the things that we need to change. To walk away from the word of God without thinking we need to do anything is as dumb as somebody who sees a huge grease spot all over their face in a mirror and walks away thinking it'll just go away by itself. We are to go to God's word and allow it to transform our lives. That's why we are now spending so much time focusing on allowing God's word to interpret God's word so that we are told God's word is what penetrates the heart. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we want God's word to penetrate your heart as it penetrates ours. If you live close by, we're going to be doing a Bible study in James to go hand in hand as we go through the Sermon on the Mount study. And so, again, let us know how we can help you. Let us know how you can be here with us one way or another. Let us know if you, where you live you're having trouble finding a church. We have a great network of people that we can talk to. But we want you to be in God's Word. We want you to be part of God's community above everything else. So, family, we love you. We don't have it figured out, but we invite you along as we go arm in arm through life, learning how to love God better. You join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that it isn't some secret how you want us to live, but you have made it as so clear to us, as clear as day. Lord, you have given us the truth and not only given us the way to live, but tell us that if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will be filled it is the one thing that we can chase after knowing that when we chase after it, you will give it and give it to us abundantly, that you lavish, on, you lavish it on us, that you are rich in it, and that you want us to chase after you and you will satisfy those needs. So Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, that we would desire it more and more. Lord, we love you. But Lord, we need your help to love each other better. So that work in our hearts and our minds so that in everything that we do, that you get the glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.